0: If you have your Bibles, be turning to 2 Thessalonians. It has been a couple of months since we've been in Second Thessalonians. And whenever we've been out of a book for an extended time, I like to kind of remind us of where we've been so we can begin to move forward again. And uh, during this time, the last couple of months, we've had Reformation Day service. We've had International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We've had Thanksgiving and Christmas. So there's been a lot of things going on. And so we just want to remind ourselves of where we've been. If you uh, think back for a moment, we've said a lot about these two letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, uh, and quite a bit about 2nd Thessalonians recently, to remind us of how significant a letter it is. Now, we know it's in the Scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we know it's important. But these letters are quite unique. We mentioned that uh, you really, if there's ever two letters that can't be separated, here they are. They were written to the same people, by the same authors, very close together in time. And that is significant. We don't have anything like that in the Scriptures that we know of, where two letters came within so short a time. We mentioned the scholars debate, three weeks, six weeks, most land on four to five weeks. Uh, Second Thessalonians is written after First Thessalonians. Similar themes, similar problems, similar things to thank the Lord for and to glory in. And so there's very similar themes here. And so as we think about these, we want to remember the bigger picture for just a second. Um, When we went into 2 Thessalonians, we literally came out of 1 Thessalonians the week before. So we didn't have to do a lot of background in 2 Thessalonians. But just want to remind you for a moment, uh, Paul had been moving through this area, planting churches in cities that had really not known the gospel, at least not significantly had known the gospel. And as Paul plants a church In Thessalonica, it gets off to a pretty good start. Some Jews come in. We don't get the idea that there are too many Gentiles at first, although that quickly changes. But trouble begins as the leaders of the synagogue are unhappy to see some of their faithful uh, members and some God-fearing Gentiles leave. Uh, Oftentimes, it was the God-fearing Gentiles that really were the ones that financed things. And so, again, this was a problem. And they were unhappy, so they began to stir up trouble. They went into the marketplace and stirred up the wicked men of the marketplace, and there was a riot against the church and they tried to seize paul and If you remember the, the history there, they couldn 't get Paul, so they got Jason. they took him before the magistrates and we don 't know how it would have turned out, except that it seems there was some kind of arrangement made that if they released Jason, uh, that they would do so if Paul and the others left town, at least Paul had to leave town and so we Know a little bit of the history beyond that. Paul, of course, leaving and going to minister elsewhere. But Paul's concern always after this seems to be for this church. It seems like this church had a very important place for Paul. And uh, Paul's worried about this church. It's a newborn church. You can imagine, once the leaders left town, you've got some elders that are probably a few weeks in the faith, maybe a, a month in the faith or two months in the faith. This is really... A church that I think Paul was concerned with. Do they have what it takes to stand in the persecution they're facing? You know, it's hard to face persecution as an experienced Christian. We have brothers and sisters all over the world that are in that reality this morning. But you can imagine for newborn Christians, if you will, very early in their walk. And yet I'm reminded that Spurgeon once said that there are some Christians that three or four or five years into their walk of faith, they're still like babes. And others that seem to grow so quickly in the faith that just a few months out, they seem to have grown leaps and bounds above others. And so maybe God blessed this church, and it seems that He did, with a handful of those young believers that just sprouted up and grew in the faith very quickly. Because what we read about in both letters is a remarkable testimony. There are some problems, no question about it. But this church is doing amazing things, growing in their faith, expanding the church, moving into other areas so that Paul says it's as if the entire area has been evangelized by you. Amazing testimony. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But Paul is writing to this same church with the same amazing people more in now than at the first letter and some developments that are not necessarily new but just continuing issues. Paul had written the first letter, hoping these things would, uh, would be fixed, be solved. They weren't quite solved. And so Paul writes again. And so we want to look at this. So as we think about this text, it's important that we read it. So we're going to read the complete text and uh, kind of hear it, and then we'll talk about it for just a moment. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. "...that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction." from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ May be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had already come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now my friends, this is an important text. It's a heavy text in the sense there is a lot here. In a very short amount of writing, Paul covers a lot of theology. And um, obviously, as we recap these first this first chapter and a half or so, uh, we can't do it in the depth that we did each Sunday along the way. And so luckily now you can go to YouTube or Sermon Audio if you want to review part of it or if there's a part you have question on. Uh, hopefully we covered it there in depth for you. Today we're going to look at kind of the broader stroke of what Paul is arguing here. And so as we do that, I want us to think about uh, three points. First of all the positive developments. There are positive developments that Paul wants to deal with or talk about. Second of all the troublesome issues. There is trouble or at least some troublesome issues in Thessalonica and Paul wants to deal with those. And then lastly the eschatological framework. Paul wraps all of this all of this struggle that is going on in the first chapter and a half and really the the two chapters here in this Theological framework of how to understand the present by looking into the future. By looking at the promise of God and what God is doing throughout time and how He's going to conclude this matter tells you much, Paul says, about the present moment and what is happening uh, in the midst of the Thessalonians. And so it's important that we hear this because Paul would give us, I believe, a similar message today. In fact, God has given us a similar message in the exact same words uh, that were given to the Thessalonians as we have this recorded for us as well. And so as we begin, we want to begin with these positive developments. Now if you begin the letter, uh, Paul gives his uh, kind of regular greeting that he gives, doesn't he? he? He announces who's writing and who he's writing to, and then he always says something like this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, You may remember that we spoke about that greeting, that it's almost word for word the same as 1 Thessalonians, except there's one difference. He changes God the Father to God our Father. And I think Paul is making the point that as they have weathered and shown themselves faithful, they have exhibited the faith that Paul wanted to see in the first letter. That Paul believed that they were believers. He remembered what happened when he came to Thessalonica, how the Spirit moved in power. So many great things happened that were an evidence of God's working in their lives. But Paul says uh, the great confirmation of faith is continuing through challenge, through trial and tribulation. Those who persevere shall be saved. Now that's not about works, but it's an evidence of who is truly transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so again, Paul is saying that's an important development. But there's even a a more specific thing he begins to point to here as you move into verse 3. He says we, the mission team, are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it's fitting. Now we spoke about this at the time, you may remember. The language Paul uses there is, we must do this. It, it is fitting that we do this, but it's even more than fitting. It is deserved. It is owed. It must occur. God must be given thanks when we see a great work of God. Who else would we thank? Paul says, you can't thank me. I'm not the one who gives growth. I might throw the seed out, Uh, another may water, all those analogies Paul gives in Corinthians, but ultimately God is the one who gives the growth. If you're seeing a great movement of God, a great work of God, then Paul says you know where to give thanks. Give thanks to God. Paul says it is right, it is fitting, it is proper. In fact, we must give God thanks because we know to whom we owe thanksgiving and praise. And Paul says that we have reason to give thanksgiving to God. Well, what is that reason? Paul says some amazing things. First of all, your faith grows exceedingly. Now, we got into that at the time, but Paul's saying it's amazing at how your faith is growing. Where we thought you would be, you have surpassed. Now, that's amazing when you think about 1 Thessalonians and Paul is marveling at their faith there. He's saying you have excelled as a young church evangelizing growing bringing people into the faith standing firm in the face of persecution and yet paul says even from that perspective here i'm writing a month later and i'm hearing that your faith is growing in exceeding ways amazing ways maybe even stupefying ways if it weren't for the fact that paul knows the power of the spirit paul knows the one at work in these believers shaping them, molding them, growing them. So Paul says, I must give thanksgiving to God for what is happening in Thessalonica. So there is a growing faith in the congregation of believers. But Paul also says there's another mark that's important. I mean, we know in Corinthians and elsewhere, uh, we're given these three marks, right? Faith, hope, and love. Well, notice Paul has already pointed to an increasing or exceeding growth of faith But also now he points to love. The love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. An abounding love, Paul says. As I look at this congregation, I see an abounding love. What does that even mean? They stick together through trial and tribulation. They're not writing each other out to the authorities, right? They are committed to one another. They love one another. And that's what Paul says, I'm seeing that occur, your love is abounding. Does that mean there's no issues in this church? Of course not. There are issues that Paul's going to deal with. But he says, as I look at the church as a whole, I see an exceedingly growing faith and I see a growing love, an abounding love, one for the other amongst the people of God in the church. Two extremely important marks, extremely important marks of a church. Now we know that um, uh, a lack of an abounding love is not necessarily a disqualifier for a church, but it should be troubling, shouldn't it? And as you think about those marks of the church that we were given through the Reformation, it's the Word of God proclaimed. The uh, distribution of the elements of communion or the sacraments of God. You also have uh, church discipline. Things like that are all important aspects of what makes a church a church. But There are these other things that should be looked for too, right? Faith, hope, love. And so again, uh, Paul is pointing, I think, here to seeing things that he would expect to see. As I look at this congregation, I would expect to see an increasing faith and a, a growing love, and I'm seeing that, and that is excellent. But that's not all Paul has to be thankful for, is it? Look at the next verse. We ourselves, meaning the mission team. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we boast of you among the churches of God. Now, I would think that would make you feel pretty good as a church that you found out that Paul and Silas and Timothy are going around saying, you ought to see that Thessalonian church. You ought to see what they're doing, how they're growing. We we see great things out of other churches as well, don't get me wrong, but that church to be as young as it is in faith, to stand against as much trouble as it stands against, and does so faithfully... It's something that should be noted as an encouragement to other churches. In the same way, Paul at the beginning of Romans says that your faith, Roman church, is renowned throughout all the world, all the Christian world, all the churches know of you. It's an example of what it means to be faithful in the shadow of Caesar's palace. That's not a small thing, is it? Great danger for those believers in Rome. And yet they stood faithfully for God and for uh, the faith. And so again, Uh, I think Paul is saying the same thing here. Just in the same way in much earlier time period, here is a church that is an example to all the churches of what it means to be a church of the living God. He says, what do we boast in exactly? Well, your patience. Your patience. And your faith in all your persecutions and tribulations. You know, uh, we think often about faithfulness and persecution. We marvel at the patience of those who are persecuted as we think around the world to our brothers and sisters we think about enduring prison or or beatings or maybe even uh death you hear of these stories obviously and we think about their faithfulness but i think paul also wants us to think about patience you know you're not always in those storms for the short haul but oftentimes you're in them for the long haul Uh, paul makes that point in his own life the struggles he went through Over many, many years, you can turn to 2 Corinthians and see that list of all that he had gone through. Floggings, beatings, jailings, shipwrecks, near death many times. My friends, we need endurance. We need endurance for this walk of Christ. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. We've heard that many times, but it's true. And that's what Paul is pointing to here. That in this short a time, you've shown an incredible patience to deal with it day in and day out, in persecution and tribulation that you endure. Now, we're going to come back in a moment to what Paul says in verses 5 and 6 and so on. We want to remember this is all one sentence in the Greek. Three through nearly the end of the chapter, one sentence. Paul has this long and complicated sentence, but it says a lot. And we don't want to separate it too much, but... I want to come back and tie it back in at the end because Paul is going to make an eschatological argument for what is happening here. But again, there is much that Paul wants to thank God for. Who wouldn't thank God for a church of increasing faith and love and even hope, I think, is pointed to by patient endurance. What do you patiently endure for except the hope that God is doing something and you've just got to keep on? keep on. And so I think all of those elements are pointed to here in the text. And so Paul is thankful for this church because it is a church of faith, hope, and love. But as I said, that doesn't mean they are free of issues, does it? Um, In fact, I read not too long ago uh, Thomas Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, who was talking about the Corinthian church. But he said, we ought to thank God that this church had issues because a lot of these Topics wouldn't have been dealt with in the Scripture if there wasn't a problem to write to the church about. And so issues with communion or whatever it may be within churches, we have a word on because these churches did have these struggles. And the um, providence of God, we have these things given to us for that reason. And here again we find it. There are issues that are unique to this church. As every church has their unique issues, but this church has a couple of unique issues here that probably are um, unique to it because of the time in which this church existed and where they were in the, in the timeline, if you will, of the early days of the church. There wasn't a collected scripture yet. These are the first letters of the scriptures in the New Testament. And so they don't have other books to turn to or other scrolls to get out or, or uh, codexes to bring out and to look at. They've got only what they've got here in the direct teaching that Paul has given them. And so there's been a couple of things happen. First of all, there are some people who are not in their appointed place, if you will. And we're going to get to that as we move forward. But Paul says there are some people who are not in the place they're supposed to be within the body of Christ. And we're going to look at that more in depth. But that has caused a situation where some people are basically saying, uh, I'm not going to contribute to the community. I'm going to sit back and take and not give. And Paul says that's a sin and should be dealt with by the church as a sin. So you see that as Paul says, uh, if they will not work, let them not eat. So again, what does he mean here? He means they're not contributing in any way. They're not a part of the family. They're, they're living off the church, but not contributing in any way. Spiritually, through prayer, through service, through any way whatsoever. So Paul says they need to get involved. That's what Paul is arguing. The other thing that you'll remember he deals with in the first letter as well is some eschatological issues. There's been some people convincing the Thessalonians that Christ has already returned. That the day of the Lord has already come. And as uh, Paul is dealing with that, it's caused great trauma in the church. Because they all thought they would live to see Christ return. That was their uh, belief, was that we'll, we'll live to Christ returns. And somebody was going around saying, well, you've already missed it. It already happened. I don't know how they were selling that argument Uh, I have no idea. It's not given to us here. I think Paul dealt with it much more in depth in person than he probably did in this letter. Um, But Paul says to them even here, don't you remember, I've explained all this to you when I was with you. Just remember what I've already told you. I wish we had that stuff recorded as well. But in the wisdom of God, we don't need it or he would have given it to us. But a lot of our questions might be answered if we did have some of that other stuff. But, uh, But anyway... It shows you, though, having that doesn't guarantee that you're going to listen or hear or understand because they had all of that and they were still led astray. The reason it became traumatic is they thought if we live to see the return of Christ, then we're, we go with him. We're um, brought up to him. It's glory. And now you say, um, my brother who died's missed it, right? My son who died last week, he's missed it. My wife who died three days ago, she's missed it. You know, how do you explain that? What are we looking for? What are we hoping in if it can be so easily taken from us? If it's not guaranteed, if there is no perseverance of these promises, there's no faithfulness on God's part to keep his word to his people as we thought Paul told us. My friends, if you think about for a moment the trauma that would cause, to think about your loved ones not being there because they just died a little too early. I think you can understand the the turmoil this was causing. And so Paul tried to deal with it in the first letter. It didn't seem to succeed. He's dealing with it again. As you come to that section in chapter 2, he says right off the bat, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him, the very issue they're concerned about, We ask you, listen to this, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord or the day of Christ had come. Now, notice a couple of things here. and I mean, again, we went far more in depth than this at the time. Go back and look at those if you want to hear more on it. But I want you to think again about what Paul says. We don't want you to be shaken The call of Christians is to stand firm on truth. To always stand firm on truth. And Paul says, I gave you that truth. I gave it to you when I was with you. You were given the truth. Stand firm on it. Don't be shaken because some other person comes along and tells you something. You know, we have a church Uh, in America today particularly, but all over the Western world today that shakes to and fro with every wind of doctrine, every wind of change, every wind and fad that comes along. It shakes and moves and blows, and nobody knows where they stand anymore. My friends, we need to stand on the Word. And Paul says, I gave you the Word, not the written Word at that time, but I gave you the Word of God as expressed through His evangelist, His man at the time, His prophet, if you will, who brought forth the word and told you these things stand on them and now he says that not to be shaken or troubled either by spirit we went through this uh, whether it's the preach word the prophetic word the written word even a letter paul says as if from us now i don't know what paul is thinking of here we talked about time has somebody been writing letters forged in paul's hand We don't know. It seems like something like that has possibly happened. Because Paul says, if you get something like that and it contradicts me, disregard it. If you find that I'm back and forth, to and fro, maybe you shouldn't listen to me, Paul says. Paul says, I've given you the word inspired by the Spirit, stand on it. Reminds me of Galatians, where Paul says, If anyone comes with a different gospel other than that which we first brought to you, Call them accursed, anathema. I think in a very similar way, Paul's saying, if anybody comes with a different message, it doesn't match up with what we first proclaimed to you, disregard it. It's not from us. The Lord doesn't tell you one thing one week and something else the next week. Now, Paul can be wrong in one sense. He's a human being just like I can be wrong. But Paul's saying, when I spoke to you, I'm speaking the inspired word of God. He's not going to be wrong there. The things that are inspired by the Spirit of God, he's not going to be wrong about. That's what he's saying. When I came to you, I spoke as the Lord's prophet, the Lord's speaker, the one who speaks forth the word of God. And so when you heard it, you can trust it. You can trust it. Now, that's important to to recognize. I'm not saying that whatever Joel Osteen says from his pulpit today is like the word of God, right? It couldn't be further from it oftentimes. The point I'm trying to get at is Paul's making a distinction here between ordinary preaching and the inspired ministry of God as an apostle in which he came and spoke the Word of God and then recorded the Word of God. It's a very different thing. And so again, uh, we want to recognize that Paul is saying, when I gave you these things, you can take it to the bank. You don't have to be shaken. You shouldn't be shaken. You should refuse to be shaken. You should stand firm in what you were taught. Let no one deceive you. And then he goes into explaining it. For the day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away. The apostasia comes first. This great apostasy will come first, Paul says. And the man of sin is revealed. This great figure, uh, this antichrist figure is revealed, the son of perdition. And it goes into descriptions. We're not going to go through all that again today. But the message here is, Paul says, there is a timetable. God has given it to you. Trust in it. Look for these things. Trust in His Word. Don't be blown or shaken by uh, what somebody comes in proclaiming today or tomorrow. Again, um, far too often you see churches that are shaken to and fro because uh, somebody's got a new idea. Somebody's got a new philosophy uh, that they've allowed to change their theology. And they say, hey, we know so much more than Paul did 2,000 years ago. My friends, anytime you hear something like that, beware. Beware. Paul didn't stand in his own wisdom. He stood in the wisdom of Christ who gave him the words to give us. And so we need to recognize that. He's not saying as a frail and weak human being, trust what I'm saying. And I don't tell you that either. I'll tell you over and over, go to your word, read your scriptures. You know, I can be wrong. I try not to be. I try to study. I try to read. I try to be accurate. But I am a human being. The Word of God will never fail. The Word of God will never fail. So my friends, trust in it. And Paul says, where you know the truth to be, stand in it. Do not be shaken. Stand firm. Don't be blown to and fro. Stand on those truths in which we must stand. So there's disorderliness in the in the church in that sense some untruths have come in but also in that lack of people being in in the positions they should be in things happening in an orderly way there's some issues there and uh, we'll come back to some of those things in the uh, near future but all of this is given in an eschatological framework now eschatological that is referring to in times in things and paul is saying when you look at the end you'll understand what's happening in the present And it's actually amazing how often that if we'll just think about the end of things as it's been given to us in Scripture, we'll understand our duties in the present. Worship itself is a sort of eschatological act in a sense. We worship now as we believe God wants us to worship for eternity. Now, we're human beings, we're frail, we're all these things. But if you look at our worship, it's structured around the truths of God's grace. It's saving love. The, the sacrifice that was made, and if you turn to Revelation, look at the worship in heaven. The Lamb, right? He is exalted. All the elders throw down their crowns. They worship the One uh, who gave His life for His people. My friends, as we uh, think about this eschatological framework, how Paul applies it is in saying that you've worried the day of the Lord has been missed. It hasn't been hasn't come yet. Hold on. It's coming. Look for it, toward it, in hope, in faith. But realize that what you're dealing with now in terms of persecution is in essence made sense by looking to the eschaton. Now that's a really complicated thing for us to deal with. We've not thought like this I think oftentimes. But Paul says for a church that is struggling to understand what's happening to it, If we are God's favored people, if we are His church, if we belong to Christ, if He loves us and He's all-powerful, how do we make sense of the fact that we're under such persecution? And Paul answers that in a very surprising way. He says that the tribulations that you're enduring are themselves manifest evidence or an evident token of the righteous judgment of God. And if you continue that on, look at what Paul says. There's a great sorting coming one day. A great sorting coming of those who are His people who will be with Him forever and those who are His enemies who will not, who will be under the righteous judgment of God. And Paul says that. Hold fast. Hold firm in the present moment. Remember on which side you are by God's grace. He says, it's a manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer since it's a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. See what Paul's doing there? If you ever begin to lick your wounds and feel sorry for yourself, remember that all that's happening in the present moment is the visualization of this great truth that you are God's people and therefore the world hates you and persecutes you. And which would you rather be? On the persecuted side with the great glories that await the people of God or on the persecutor's side with the great judgment that awaits them? It's an encouragement, isn't it, to Paul's trying to give them. In a strange way, I think, for people that don't face a lot of persecution. It's hard for us to be like thankful for persecution. But I think what Paul's trying to say is it becomes an evident token, a visual picture. Something in the present that proves the future reality that you are amongst the people of God. And that when you begin to lick your wounds and feel sorry for yourself, remember this, that God is showing you in the present where you are eternally. With His people. Despised, hated, persecuted. Yes, but bound for glory. Bound for glory. And the side that seems to have it easy now my friends, you will not want to trade places with them then. Look at what Paul says. That God will repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest. So you're given rest with the Lord Jesus from all your troubles. But look what happens to them as the Lord is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day. My friends, that's as stern a revelation of the truth as you're going to find anywhere of what awaits the enemies of God. They might laugh now. They might celebrate now. You might feel like we're on the losing side now. But my friends, Paul says it's just a short time. Life is such a short time. And then all will be revealed. All will be revealed. And if you wonder what side you're on, Paul says it's being revealed for you even now in the present. It's clear what side you're on because the world hates you. My friends, we ought to think a moment about the comfort that persecuted Christians get all over the world from this. When we're told in the Scriptures to count it a blessing to be persecuted, why would that ever be a blessing? Except that we identify with Christ and we recognize that in some ways it is a picture of our faithfulness to Christ. It doesn't earn us salvation, but it shows the salvation we have by God's grace and that we are willing to endure and stand by His grace again. Paul says, so in a strange way, when you're persecuted, count it a joy. Count it a revelation of where you stand eschatologically. My friends, that's going to play heavy in this letter. Because Paul is trying to tell the people who are troubled, who are struggling, to keep on in the faith. Keep on keeping on. Keep on standing for Christ. Keep on being devoted to Him. Even in hard times. And when you have those moments where your faith feels like it's fading or you feel tired or whatever it may be and you've lost that patient endurance that Paul was complimenting earlier, think eschatologically again. Think again on what side of the equation you're on and give God thanksgiving for His grace and stand firm once more. My friends, the American church needs to hear this too, doesn't it? There's a church that's getting blown to and fro It's the modern Western church. I think we need to hear this. Stand firm. It may not be comfortable. And part of the reason we don't face more persecution is because we shake to and fro. Oh, okay, well that's part of theology is not popular. We'll just drop it. Oh, standing on this truth. The world doesn't like that. We'll just ignore it. Paul says if it's in the Word of God, stand on it. And if you're persecuted for it, count it all joy. Count it all joy.